Often do you think about is does my life count? Often I'm, I'm look at my life and I, am I doing anything of substance? Am I doing anything that's of value? I, I want my life to count. I think most people do. In fact, I think it's such a big deal. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Everybody wants their their life to mean something. Now, for a lot of people, it's what we call narsothropy. Narsothropy. I didn't coin the word, but it's a really good word. Narcissism and philanthropy, okay? It's like, I do things for other people because it makes me feel good about myself. And so my identity is in, in, is in helping other people, which quite frankly is really selfish and self-centered. And that's not what I'm advocating here for, but I'm saying, um, what is it about your life that, that really counts, that matters? I mean, if you ask that question, do, do I have a life that matters? Have I, have I used my life in such a way, surrendered my life, and yielded it to the master in such a way that, that he can do whatever he wants with it? And as soon as you start asking that question, for many of us, we're going to begin to ask some other questions. Am I, do I really have anything to offer God? I mean, just, I mean, my life's really not like this person or that person. I really don't have this, and I can't do that, and I'm, I'm really kind of damaged goods, and I, I really don't, I, mean, I really feel like I don't really, God can't use me. I'm too messed up. I've got too much of a past. I've got too much of this or too much of that, or I'm too simple in this area or that area or whatever. And so he gets into this passage, and he gives us some good insights into these, answering these questions. And so let's read. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 says, Now in a great house, <clears throat> there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Let's pause there for a second, and let me show you in our magic trunk here. I have some different vessels here, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. I was going to get a necessary pot. I have a friend that's into antiques, but then I thought that was maybe pushing it a little too far. Does anybody know what, you know what a necessary pot is? That was back in the day when you didn't have indoor plumbing and you needed the plumbing, you know. Um, you would deposit whatever it is that you're depositing in a necessary pot and then you would carry it outside and then you would discard of it out in, outside the camp, outside the house, and the whatever. Okay, and so that was, uh, you know, the necessary pot. Neither of these are necessary pots, but... Um, but these are some vessels for honorable use, dishonorable use. We would probably classify these as dishonorable. This one looks a little grungy. It's been used a lot, okay? How many of you guys would like to drink some water out of there? If I can get you some water, anybody thirsty, we can, okay? And this one has um, been used for a variety of different things, some honorable, some dishonorable. Um, little jar here. We've had marshmallows and some other things in this. This is a nice little keepsake thing. You can keep things fresh in there. That's a a good jar. That's really good. Um, I find this to be uh, a vessel used for incredibly honorable things. I mean, I, I've, I find this to be one of the most valuable things a, a, a person can have in their home is a coffee pot. I think this is of great value. And so I would consider this, though it looks a little, you know, it's been used, but um, in fact, it was used this morning. Uh, but it is, uh, this is an honorable vessel. Okay, so coffee pot, that's good. And um, obviously, this is a beautiful punch bowl. This would be we would consider this honorable, correct, right? And so we look at these things and we go, you know, well, this one's this crystal and this plastic and it's glass and this is this and it's that. And some are valuable, some are not valuable, some are... And we define things based upon what they look like, right? We look at these different vessels and we go, well, this one's kind of grungy, so that's kind of gross, so we don't want that, right? And we just toss it aside. And that's kind of the way we look at our own lives, isn't it? Sometimes I'm really not useful to the Lord. He can't do anything with me. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to be discarded. And, and, and yet, that's not where he stops here. 
He goes on to say, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, literally purges, cleanses, purges from within, gets out the the yucky stuff from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let me read that again. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master's to the master of the house, ready for every good work. A couple things to think about. How useful are you to the Father? How useful are you to the Master, to the Lord, to God? How useful are you? Again, he's referring in, in, in the historically when he's talking about this, he'd be talking about some wooden vessels, bowls, glasses, whatever, um, cups made out of wood, uh, ceramic. Some of them would be made out of clay, earthenware, they would call them. Um, some were gold, some were silver, some of value, some would be considered um, not very valuable, some used for really good things, some used for things that would be kind of gross. But regardless of those things, he says that you can cleanse these things. So how useful are you to Father? A couple questions to ask. A couple questions to ask. It's not about your feelings of worth. It really doesn't matter how useful you feel like you are. That's, that's not how he gauges usefulness. The second thing to think about is it's not about your past. Doesn't matter what you were used for or how your life was used in the past. Doesn't matter. God is not, He doesn't define you by the, by the past, okay? He can redeem any vessel and use it for His purposes and His honor. And the last thought is to look at the key to usefulness. So, how is it, regardless of my past, regardless of how I feel about myself, regardless of how I feel about my usefulness, how is it that I can be useful to the Father? Well, three simple things. First of all, be cleansed. Be cleansed. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use. You want to be a vessel of honorable use? The first thing is to cleanse yourself. We as a church, we talk a lot about repentance and faith because repentance isn't something you do to enter into the kingdom and it stops there. It's something that it should be a rhythm of our lives. If you are spending any amount of time in the Word of God under the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, then you should be confronted on a regular basis with the greatness of God and the, um, the need in your life. God will become bigger in your life. You'll see Him as greater and more majestic and holy and awesome and glorious, and you will see your need for God, I mean, your um, worth and value starting to go down apart from Christ. See, when, when you first become a Christian, you're thinking about, man, I've got all these major things I'm struggling with. I've got all these addictions and this big stuff and this whatever. There's all these what we would look at it to be obvious, really bad stuff in our lives. But as you grow in your relationship with Christ, those things are dealt with. But the reality is your awareness of sin becomes greater because there's subtleties that were behind those big sins that are really the sin behind the sin that you're starting to deal with that, that God begins to slowly, lovingly expose in our hearts and lives. And those are the things we really need to repent of to believe in Jesus. Pride isn't something that's just a problem for unbelievers or young believers. Pride is something that we all struggle with, and as we grow in Christ, we're constantly confronted with pride. Talked about narsothropy. You might be an incredibly service-minded person, and you might be just, man, you just love to serve people. But, but if you really are honest, you think, you know what, there's some narsothropy in me. I, I guess I kind of often do it to gain value. And I often, I, yeah, I get upset when I don't get a thank you card, or I get upset when it's not 
reciprocal. They don't do something back for me when I did something for them, or they don't acknowledge what I did. It's not necessarily under the Lord. I, I get, and God begins to expose these things. So we're constantly needing to repent of certain things in our life. And that's what he talks about. If you want to be useful to the Father, you need to purge. You need to let that stuff out. Get that stuff out of your life. So be cleansed. Repent. And then secondly, be set apart. He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Set apart is a mindset, I think, that we need to kind of acknowledge. If, we, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in, your, in, in, in Christ, His death on the cross for you, God has great plans for you, and you are to be, you're part of what the Bible calls a holy nation. A holy nation. That word holy means other than. Holiness is something different. In fact, the, the contrast of holiness really is not, is not yuckiness necessarily. It's called common what is the opposite of what is holy is what is common and he's saying i I don't i don't want to use you for common use uh, common purposes your life is not to be spent on what is common i have something of greater value you're to be set apart and distinct and holy and that's why in the old testament you have all these really distinct levitical um, laws and the laws and and exodus and reiterated in deuteronomy there's all of these laws that now we look back and we're like man what is the deal why did they care whether they had garments of two thread or this or that or or whether they washed their hands really good before they ate we understand that one now Um, why did they care about this thing or that when there's all these nuances that we might look at and think are kind of silly that were part of the ceremonial law that if you did these things you would be unclean you need to be purified it was god trying to teach us that i want you as a nation as a people to be set apart it wasn't him saying, I want you to be legalistic and I want you to follow these rules and regulations for the rest. No, Jesus has fulfilled all of those things, okay? But what he is saying is still, in the New Testament, I still want you to be distinct and different. You need to, you need to be set apart and holy. What does that mean? That means you look at your life and you realize, you know what? I am not my own. I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Now, Jesus Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who saved me. My life is different. God has different purposes and different values. And so when I look at my life, when I jump into that which is unholy, I am living inconsistent with who I now am. I'm not living a life of holiness. I'm living a life of sinfulness and or commonness. And God has greater purposes. God has not redeemed me for me to spend my life in sin. God hasn't wasted my life in sin. God hasn't redeemed you for that purpose. So be cleansed, be set apart, be holy. And then lastly, be ready. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's interesting, that word set apart and the word ready are similar verb tenses. And I won't get into all of the meaning behind it. But the, the point of it is, I mean, you are set apart. I mean, not, this isn't like a flippant, yeah, yeah you, you're holy. But no, I mean, from this point forward, you have a different purpose. You have a different plan. God has a different plan for your life. From this point forward, you're not going to be cast aside if I can go over here and grab this bucket. Christ has cleansed you, and this isn't a paint bucket, a water bucket, a wash bucket, or whatever bucket. This is going to be used for holy things. God has a great plan for this. And so for this point forward, it has distinct, and it needs to be in a posture of readiness. It needs to be ready to be used of the Father however He wills and whenever He desires. How can we be ready to carry God's living water to a weary world? I mean, should we fill our lives with things of less value? 
I mean, if, if you fill, if you put something yucky in the bucket, okay, it's not really ready to be used again, is it? A lot of times we cut off our usefulness to God because we go back and we go back to things that we've been used for in the past and our life has been spent and wasted on and we cease to be useful and available and living a posture of readiness, ready for God to use us. But man, when we have been cleansed and we know we're set apart and we have a posture of readiness, God has great plans for your life. He has all kinds of things he would like to utilize you and use you for. You have no idea how many incredible things God wants to do in and through you. If, if we would just realize, we just repent, be cleansed. We realize we have been set apart and we would live in a posture of readiness. Now he goes from this analogy and he continues, and it's a similar thought, but he's going to continue and he's going to go in a little bit different direction. Verse 22, based on this context of being cleansed, set apart and holy and being ready, he gives Timothy some ideas of some things he needs to think about. Now, specifically, he's dealing with Timothy in regards to false teachers. This applies to lots of things, but false ideas that have snuck into the church that need to be dealt with. And he gives Timothy some insights. Okay, if you're going to be a useful vessel, you're going to be set apart, cleansed, useful for my purposes, you need to still, there's a, there's a, way, there's a right way and a wrong way to be useful. Okay, some people, all of this thinking of, of repenting and being set apart and being useful creates a pride and arrogance. Yeah, I'm going to be useful for God. I'm, God's going to use me. I work for God, and I'm going to do it. You all need me, because I, and we get prideful, and we get arrogant, and he wants, to, he wants to make sure Timothy understands how to do this in a right way and in a wrong way. And so he starts in verse 22, and he gives him a thought. He says, so flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. I want you to flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, <clears throat> along with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And so the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness God may perhaps, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So our last section of this passage, there's some really good stuff here, is to think about, well, how do, what are the traits of a servant of God, somebody useful for God? In fact, he uses the word bondservant. In some of your translations, some of them might just say Lord's servant, literally means bondservant. There's two kinds of servants in the New Testament, two main words used. One is diakonos, which we get deacons from, which a deacon is not somebody who wields um, control and authority over a congregation of people. That's not the point of the word deacon, nor the office that are, is fleshed out in a lot of churches. That's not the point of it. But a deacon is something people, they're willing to be a deacon. I, I'll be a servant because there's a sense of authority in that. But a doulos is the second word. A doulos, a bondservant, Eh, not so much. Don't want to do that. I would like to be a deacon, so I'll be a servant set apart with a but but to be a a doulos, that's somebody who is submitted to the master and they don't have any will, they don't have rights, they don't have they just do whatever the father wills for them to do. Whatever the master needs them to do, that's the and that's the posture that we all are to have as believers. Is we're to be we're to be doulos, we're to be bond servants. We're to be set apart for the master's use. We have surrendered our lives 
to be used for the Father, however He chooses to do that. Life, death, sickness, health, doesn't matter. Whatever God chooses to do with us, we are His vessels. He could do whatever He wants. But He begins by saying, look, flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. What, what is He referring to there? Flee youthful passions. He's not talking about immorality per se. He's talking about the hot-headedness of youth, the unbridledness of youth. That's why when we go to war, we don't send um, older men to war. We send hot-headed young guys. Here's a gun. There's the enemy. Go get them. You know, all right. You know, and they, they take off, right? Because they're young. They're, they have youthful passions. And if you can get them fired up and you can harness that zeal and that passion and that, they'll, they will conquer whatever needs to be conquered. If they need to storm the beaches of Normandy, they can storm whatever beaches, crawl and scale whatever mountains. It doesn't really matter. It's, they'll do whatever they need to do because they just get passionate and hot-headed and they're just fired up. Whenever. And he's saying, Timothy, I know you're young, but I want you to not be unbridled in your passion to where you're so passionate about being a vessel that you destroy other people, you run over other people, you hurt, you wound. There's, there's such a thing as, as winning the battle and losing the war. And hot-headed, youthful passion is just known for winning battles. You're gonna, you'll die on a hill that really doesn't accomplish the overall objective of the war. And so you kind of waste that zeal. And he's saying, I want you to flee from that kind of hot-headedness. Don't be hot-headed. Don't be running after unbridled, um, your unbridled passions. So he says, flee youthful lust. Don't be a prisoner to your passions or strong desires. Pursue righteousness. But in contrast, run after, run away from your unbridled passions, being a prisoner to your flesh, but yet run after righteousness. The only way to overcome evil, Romans chapter 12, verse 21, is with good. Replace evil with good. Uh, Jesus said, if you want to be set free, he says, you need the truth. The truth will set you free. So you overcome evil with good, lies with the truth. Be about those things. Flee from youthful passages, but pursue righteousness. And then he says faith. We know in Hebrews chapter 11, the only way to please God is by faith. By faith. And Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame. And I don't have time to go into all of it, but I would encourage you to read and reflect upon. If you want to know, how do I live a life of faith? How do I live a life of faith? You read Hebrews 11 and you'll see examples of many, many men and women that have lived lives of faith, that trusted God for something that was not seen, that they couldn't physically see working out, many of them in their lifetime, but they trusted God beyond sight for what was something that was far greater. They lived for a city whose maker, uh, who, who was not made by hands, a city that's a heavenly city. They lived for heaven. They lived for something beyond this tangible world, knowing that this world is temporal. So a life of faith is living for that which is eternal. That's kind of what we say as God over self, uh, people over things, and eternity over time. That would be a life of faith. A person who lives for God over self, for people are more important than things, and eternity is more important than time. Time is ceasing, is fleeting, but we want to redeem it. So flee youthful lust, pursue, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love word love he's talking about a selfless unconditional love not based on emotions or affections or attractiveness or worth he's saying you love because christ has loved you when you were unlovable when you were his enemies 
We love other people in the same way that he has loved us. While we were yet enemies of God, he has demonstrated his love towards us. And that's the kind of love Paul's challenging Timothy and us to live by. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, harmonious relationships. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says, As much as, as, as possible, you want to be at peace with all men. Now, you can't control how everybody views you, receives you, likes you, doesn't like you. But it, to the degree that it's up to you, do whatever you can to be at peace with everybody. It, it's, Jesus said, look, it's better to settle out of court than in court. It'd be better for you to go ahead and deal with whatever conflict is between you and other people before you get in my presence. Go ahead and deal with it now. Okay, and so to the degree that it is in your control, do whatever you can to be at peace with other people. That's the kind of life that a vessel being useful for the Father's purposes is uh, lives. Flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, peace, love. And then he challenges them to employ some discernment. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So he's saying don't get sucked into arguing about stuff that is, is uh, ignorant. In fact, um, there's a simple translation of the New Testament. Really, it's more of a paraphrase written for a gentleman translating or paraphrasing the Bible for his kids, the Phillips translation. He uses this word, he says, silly and ill-informed, which is a nicer way of saying ignorant. Okay? <laughs> ignorant is uneducated, undisciplined, without training. And he's saying ultimately silly and ill-informed, not very informed uh, perspectives. You have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, but you, you know that they breed only quarrels. You understand there's, there's churches that fight over some of the dumbest things that in the name of Christ, there are churches that will fight over carpet or buildings or um, different parts of a building. My great-great-grandfather bought that pew or that window or that this or that this, whatever, and, and we're not going to change that. We're going to be like, all this stuff is to be useful for the father every wants, and it doesn't really, there's no value in things except that they're tools to be um, leveraged to reach other people. And yet we'll argue about that stuff. We'll get over, we'll have arguments over music style, worship style. We'll have arguments over translations of the Bible. I've almost gotten a road rage accident one time years ago, pulled up behind a a car and it had a bumper sticker. hope this doesn't offend anybody, but it said, um, of all the things, think of all the things that a believer, a follower of Christ could put on the back of their car. And this person had, if it ain't King James, it ain't Bible. I almost drove up into their back seat and had a conversation about translation theory and what translations are the most reliable and what are not, whatever. And, you know, and uh, I mean, I, it, it was just, you know, and I'm not saying translate that King James is a bad translation, but I'm gonna, I will tell you it's not the only translation and it is a translation, okay? If you really want to get arrogant about your copy of the word that you use, then learn Greek and Hebrew, okay? And then we'll start arguing about whose Bible's better, Right? But we just want a good translation that helps people know God and whatever. And the more reliable, the better. And that's good. And again, that's a great translation. I don't have a problem with it. But don't say it's the only one and it's the one Paul used. Because it wasn't the one Paul used. And that is an ignorant controversy, isn't it not? There's some, so many things have been used to fight for something that it's, you know, what Paul used. If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Or your Baptist. And I don't have a problem with Baptists. I think Baptists are great. But it's like John the Baptist, he was a Baptist. Well, not, I mean, well... I mean, and again, not to go, it's, that's an ignorant controversy, okay? We talked about last week, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons, you know? Um, that, that's another one. They used to argue back in the day about how many angels can balance on the head of a, of a needle, of a pin. 
And we have our own things we talk about. You know what he's really getting to? He's really challenging. And I think the biggest controversy that we have today in our churches and in the South, this is why we've said many times that you know, when people ask, why do, you, why do you start another church in Johnson City or in the South? Do we really need another church? Yeah, because we're over-churched, but we're under-gospeled. And there's a lot of churches that are arguing and fighting for moralism. They're coming up with their list of if you do these things, you're righteous. If you dress this way, act this way, talk this way, whatever, then you are righteous. And if you don't do these things, you're unrighteous rather than saying Christ alone is your righteousness. Christ alone makes you righteous. Christ alone can save, change, transform you. And that's the gospel, is that Jesus is the only one who gets the credit for righteousness in our lives, right? Not us. We want to have a theology that exalts Christ and humbles us, right? We become less that he can become more, quote-unquote, John the Baptist. We want to decrease so that he can increase. And so foolish controversies, we argue over things and we get mad and we lay righteousness on people about things that are just dangerous quite frankly and that is that literally that's really what he's talking about when he's talking about um dishonorable use he's really not talking about immorality so much as he's talking about false teaching if you want to be exact that's really where he's going with these analogies and so we want to be useful for the father fleeing youthful lust but being passionate about pursuing uh faith love peace righteousness having discernment not getting roped into um Ignorant speculations, dull-minded, untrained, unlearned. First Timothy chapter 1, let me just flip there because you need to read this. In fact, why don't you flip there with me? First Timothy chapter 1, make a left turn. I encourage you to bring your Bibles if you have one, boot it up or unzip your pouch, lay it out there or whatever you got to do to get your Bible ready. Um, we want to use them. And he says in, in chapter 1, verse, we'll start uh, with 4. Nor pay attention to myths, chapter 1, verse 4, and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instructions is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That means unhypocritical is what that word means, an unhypocritical faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions. Wanting to be teachers of the law. So these aren't like crazy outsiders that sneak in. These are people that, that supposedly know the Bible. And they want to be teachers of the law. These are people who love wielding authority over other people using the Bible. Wanting to be teachers of the law. Even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters by which they make confident assertions. They're awful confident and awful cocky and awful assertive about their interpretation of Scripture, and yet they're incredibly unbiblical. And they're using, no longer are they useful to the Father, but they have become a dishonorable, dishonorable vessel used for yucky things because they are peddling poison to people that will destroy their lives. Moralism is a poison that has destroyed many lives. Moralism has condemned many people's Kids, grandkids, whatever, have walked away from God because they got sick of being yelled at with a group of standards that they're supposed to live by, that they can clearly see through, that doesn't, in the end, point to Christ, but it points to their own self-righteousness. And we need to push aside those ignorant and foolish controversies which people make 
confident assertions about using the law in a wrong way. In fact, he goes on. If you say, well, then, so you're saying the law is bad. No. He goes on to say, verse 8, I love this, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If you know how to use it, the law is great. But if you don't, boy, it's, it can be poisonous to some people. When it's used as a standard of righteousness that you're supposed to live up to, danger. When it's used to point you to your need for Christ, it is beautiful. So, bring it home. Pursue these things. Be discerning, be wise. And then he gives some traits of a useful servant and some traits of the opposition, those who are in danger uh, and are not useful servants or vessels. Verse 24, the Lord's servant, bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, a fighter, a brawler, but kind to everyone, able to teach. So how do you deal with opposition? First of all, you do it in kindness. Don't be quarrelsome, but be gentle. Be able to teach, be effective in being able to handle the word without losing your head. There was a pastor, I'm not going to mention his name, but he became incredibly popular and incredibly, um, I mean, his church exploded. He did, God used his ministry, did great things through him. But at the beginning of his ministry and throughout his ministry, the guy was a hot-headed um, guy. And he would, he would deal with people in opposition. He was known as the cussing pastor because somebody that believed false teaching and believe false things about the Bible, he would get mad at them and he would just cuss them out. He would just get mad. Now, I appreciate his opposition to false teaching. I appreciate that. But I don't really, it's probably not the best way to handle this. And so this guy, this became a reputation early in his ministry and he started to get a little better and grow and mature. He probably was elevated a little too quickly. He was a little too young to be in that position that he was at. And, And then he continued at times to be a little heavy handed with people in his leadership and the way, and he didn't emulate these things and now he has been disqualified from ministry at this point hopefully god will i have no doubt god will use him in the future but but his ministry wow it it i don't know that will ever be what it could have been because he did not yield to these things he wasn't a useful bond servant but he was a fighter he was not kind he was effective in teaching i'll give him that but he wasn't patient when wronged and so those things ended up disqualifying him in his ministry and causing lots of damage to the kingdom. But the Lord's servant is to not be quarrelsome. He's to be kind, able to teach, skillful in using the word of God, patient, enduring evil. If, you, if you're dealing with somebody that is believing false things or is far from God, getting mad, and the, the, whoever shouts the loudest doesn't win, okay? You, you wash their feet. You love them. You, you, you continue to, they're not attacking you. They're attacking Christ. So stop acting like you have to defend him He'll defend himself. You just be patient and you love and you serve like Christ was on the cross, to be exact. He yielded himself to the Father for the Father to, um, for the Father to be his advocate rather than him fighting back on the cross. He laid his life down. You know, sometimes the greatest testimony of your faith in Christ is when somebody attacks you and you respond humbly by trusting the Father to be your advocate the Father to fight for you, like Jesus. Jesus is most seen in your life when you suffer unjustly, 1 Peter chapter 2. Lord's servant is to not be quarrelsome, but to be kind, able to teach, patient, enduring evil, correcting his opponents, educating the immature and the misinformed with gentleness, meaning with no desire for revenge. You're not doing this because their reputation, they care about their reputation. Their desire is to rescue this person that is clearly deceived and doesn't understand understand the truth. 
that God perhaps may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That's a statement about salvation. That God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Sometimes people will talk about somebody having saving knowledge, or here's the big word, salvific knowledge or salvific faith. What they're talking about is they have a knowledge that has brought them to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. They have an understanding of the gospel to where they have believed and, and put their faith in Christ and he has saved them. They've gone from death to life. A lot of people who have knowledge of the truth, but not one that has um, been the result of repentance that has brought them to a knowledge of the truth that's salvific, that's saving. And so the goal here is that God would bring them salvation, whether that's bringing them back to Christ or that he would save them for the first time, that they may come to their senses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, it says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to their shame. There's a lot of people that just don't know about God, and that's shameful. It's sad. But boy, should we not have compassion on them? They are drunk on lies and false teaching and false beliefs, and they need to be rescued and sobered up. And the only way to sober them up is with the truth, the Word of God, administered gently and carefully in a loving way to bring them to the truth. If you're going to do that with somebody, you're going to have to get down and dirty in their lives, okay? This isn't done on the sidewalk in a casual conversation. This is done by getting involved in people's lives. And that's the heartbeat of our church. That's what he's saying. If you're going to be able to help people going from being dishonorable to useful to the Father, you're going to have to get involved in people's lives, and you're going to have to get involved in such a way that, that there's going to be conflict at times. And when there's conflict... You don't just say, wow, that was really awkward and I'm never going back there. No, you stay engaged and you continue to love unconditionally. You continue to have faith. You continue to pursue righteousness. You continue to to wash their feet, to serve them. And when you continue to come back and to love them, even though they might be unlovable or have rejected you or have said your ideas are stupid or dumb or immature or whatever, and they have attacked you and you continue to love them, that is where God is working. And hopefully they're they're going to be and they're going to come to repentance and knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The traits of the opposition, they need repentance. They need a knowledge of the truth. They're deceived by a lie. They're deceived by a lie. They are, they are trapped by the devil. They are completely helpless apart from uh, God's intervention. They are stuck. They are captured, and they are in bondage to lies and to the enemy. And apart from God delivering them, there's no hope. This is why when Jesus' disciples came to them as they had casted out demons and healed the sick and done amazing things, and they came across this one guy that was really messed up, really, really messed up, and they couldn't fix his problems. And he was demon-possessed, and, and whatever they tried didn't work. And they finally bring him to Jesus, who's coming off of the Mount of Transfiguration. <clears throat> and they say, you know, what's the deal? We, we tried to help this guy. We don't know how to help him. And Jesus had helped him, delivered him, set him free. And Jesus turns to the disciples after the event, and they're kind of debriefing on it. What happened? We thought you told us that we had the authority to do these things and whatever. And he says to him, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. That this kind doesn't come out by your ingenuity, by your creativity, 
by your persuasiveness, by the emotion that you try to whip up or create, or by the programs the church has, or by how great your location is, or, or by whatever things that you try to orchestrate to get God to work in a given situation. None of that stuff is going to help people who are deeply imprisoned to the enemy, to their flesh, to the world, to the devil. That kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. That kind only comes out by God's gracious deliverance in their lives. And so the question for you, you, you sit in a couple different possible seats here this morning. You, you might be one of those people. You're going, man, I have been deceived by lots of lies. I've bought into a moral, moralism. I have been a confident asserter of things I really didn't understand. And I have preached a gospel that I realize now is false. And I need to find true faith in Christ this morning. That might be you this morning. And I need Jesus. Or, or you might be saying, you know, I'm one of those vessels that honestly, I, I never saw myself as being honorable. I've only seen myself as being dishonorable. And I would say to you, repent. Know that you've been set apart and live in a posture of readiness to be used for the Father. It's really the two places. Or you'd say, you know what, I, I know that God has purposes for me. And I, I've repented, I'm ready, and I, but now I need to get engaged. And I need to be actively trusting God to use me and, and to be um, that I would be used by the master for things beyond stuff investing in this temporal world, but things that are eternal. God, his word, and the souls of men and women that will last forever. Let me invest in those things, and that's the call for your life. Father, in these moments, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, we're thankful that you have a purpose and a plan for us. It doesn't matter how we feel our worth, what we feel about our worth. It doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter those things. God, you have set us free, free by the power of your resurrection, by the power of the gospel to be useful for the master. God, I pray that you would grant us repentance that leads to faith, that you would cleanse us this morning, you would set us apart, and that we would be useful for your plan, that you would do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine through our lives, God, as we jump into other people's lives, to the dirt and the mess and the blindness the distractions of life, God, that we would find ourselves useful to the master. In Jesus' name we pray, we worship, we sing.